Fun. Um, this is cool. You know, tonight's kind of an experiment because we've never done a service like this. We've never done food beforehand and then tried to get everyone in here and the kids and everything. Wasn't it sweet, though, to have the kids in for worship? I like that. I like that a lot. I, I think that's neat for them to see you guys, to see adults worshiping the Lord. And that, that's just really important. I just heard someone just told me that my son was sitting in the front row right here and that he said, this music is putting me to sleep. So I guess we need to kick it up a notch or something. The band cannot keep up with VeggieTales or something like that. Every week, a different home group is going to be providing the food. And so this week's home group was uh, John Ryan and Christy Schlebohm's home group. And uh, they meet over on Valacito. Yeah! So we didn't know how much you know, food to get exactly. We didn't know how many of you would turn out. So did everybody get to eat? Did everyone get to eat? Okay, cool. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. That's cool. So every week it'll be a different home group. There'll be some home groups from Ventura doing it, some home groups from Santa Barbara and Goleta doing it, home groups in CARP. That's going to be fun. Uh, the men's group, which normally meets kind of at this time on Wednesday nights, has been moved to Thursday in case you didn't know. So that's tomorrow, 5.30 or 5.15? Tomorrow, 5.30, upstairs, the men's group will be meeting. And then uh, don't forget, Friday night is Dominic's CD release party right here. Yeah. That's going to be an awesome time. And listen, he's in the, I, I saw him go in the bathroom, so I'll tell you guys why he's not in here. His songs are phenomenal. I mean, they are un, they're really good. Really Really good. He could be somebody. If we don't play our cards right, you know what I mean? Keep a, keep, just keep a lid on it. Don't give too many people the CDs. But bring your money Friday night so you could buy some CDs for the brother. You know what I'm saying? Give him 100 bucks and take a CD. All right, guys. Well, we're going to be studying for the next nine weeks Hebrews chapter 11. So let's go ahead and open up to Hebrews chapter 11. I'm going to be doing tonight kind of an introduction to Hebrews 11, just kind of setting the stage for the things that we're going to learn. And we're calling this series this summer, The Life of Faith, The Life of Faith. Hebrews chapter 11 is often referred to as the Hall of Faith, kind of a a play on, you know, the Hall of Fame, because it's men and women in the Bible that exercise great faith. And so we're going to study their lives over the next nine weeks and, and see the challenges that were before them, see how God orchestrated circumstances and how they responded with faith and the fruit that came from that. And the goal of our nine-week study this summer is that our faith would be increased, you know, that our faith would be increased. Because remember uh, Matthew twenty-one twenty-two: anything that you shall ask believing, that you shall have. And, and so, man, we've just been learning how to pray, and we're asking the Lord to do wonderful things, and, and we've got to have faith. And so I believe the Lord is going to really cause our faith to just go through the roof this summer if we'll put to practice the things that we are learning. So let's start reading in Hebrews 11. We're just going to read the first three verses for right now. It says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the men of old gained approval. By faith we understand that the worlds were prepared by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things which are visible. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you so much for this awesome family evening. So good to be breaking bread together and worshiping with our kids and having more time to greet and get to know each other. And Lord, we ask that you'd work wonderfully in those times this summer. We ask that you develop powerful relationships, relationships for life, the kind of relationships that would push us towards faith and toward you, Lord, the kind of relationships that would cause us to fall more in love with you and subsequently more in love with one another. And so I would ask that next week as we meet for dinner that you would um, ordain even seating, Lord. We'd be seated next to people that would just be a supernatural connection. Please work in those times. We know that that was so important in the early church and in the church through history that people would take meals together. 
Bless our meals together, Lord. And bless our study in Hebrews 11. Lord, we ask that this would just be a a powerfully anointed series. And it would be for so much your glory that every lesson that is taught from this pulpit, that Jesus, you would just be lifted up. You'd be so honored and so blessed and we would be so focused on you that our faith would just go through the roof. Living faith, Lord. Faith that could move mountains. Do that in our midst, Lord. Bless this Bible study that we're having together now. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, as I said, I'm just going to kind of give you guys an introduction to Hebrews 11 and, and talk about a few things. And uh, one thing that's interesting about the book of Hebrews itself is that the author is unknown. Many the other books that we have in, in the New Testament, the, the author is known. You know, Paul will write an epistle and he'll say, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. And, and then he'll continue on. Or Peter, you know, Peter wrote Peter. Uh, to the churches in Asia Minor and First Peter there. And, and some of the other books were aware of who the author is. There's some self-identification. But this particular letter is anonymous, at least to us. The, the name hasn't come down through history to us. And, and you understand that the epistles, an epistle is a letter. And so all these little books in your New Testament, you know, uh, Romans and First Corinthians and Second Corinthians and uh, Galatians and Ephesians and Philippians and Colossians and First Timothy, Second Timothy and Thessalonians and Philemon and, and Hebrews and First and Second Peter and James. These were all letters, letters that were either sent to a, a certain group of people or a certain church gathering. And same thing right here. This is a letter, and it's called Hebrews because it was written to a segment of the Jewish church or the Hebrew church. That's why it's called Hebrews. Like Romans was sent to the church in Rome. You know, Colossians was sent to the church in Colossae. And so Hebrews was sent to a segment of the Jewish church, Jews that had identified Jesus Christ as the Messiah. Now, We don't know who the author is, as I said before. Many people guess that it's Paul, which is probably the most reasonable guess. And and there's good arguments for it, and there's good arguments against it. We won't trouble ourselves with those things tonight, but it's an interesting study if you want to dig into it. We can't say definitively who wrote it other than the Holy Spirit. Amen? All in Scripture is inspired by God, 2 Timothy 3.16. So we know that the Holy Spirit is the one who authored the book of Hebrews because it's in your Bible. So it's cool. Don't sweat it too much. And we don't know exactly where this body of Jewish believers were either. There's various speculation as to where they might be. But in my studies, I I think that the best guess, um, again, for reasons we won't trouble ourselves with this evening, is that they were the Jews in the churches of Judea. Judea being this area surrounding Jerusalem. You know, Jerusalem is right here, and then it's in the district of Judea, and then you had Samaria, and then the outermost parts of the earth, as the Lord said, where to take the gospel to. And so I think, with many others, that this is written to the Jewish churches in Judea, in the land of Israel. We don't know the exact date when it was written. Um, There are some clues within the book, and I'll give you a few right now, that help us as to choose a date sometime in the 60s, not the 60s that some of you all were in, but the 60s of the first century, different connotations there, praise the Lord. So here are some of the hints that we have as to the date. Number one, uh, one of the early church fathers, Clement of Rome, wrote a letter in, in the year 96 AD, and he quoted from the book of Hebrews. So we know for sure that it was written before the year 96. That's a no-brainer, no big deal. But in chapter 13 of Hebrews, verse 23, Timothy is mentioned. And so the book had to have been written before Timothy became a Christian. And we're pretty sure as we put the book of Acts together that Timothy, uh, or after Timothy became a Christian, excuse me, because he's mentioned it, we're pretty sure as we piece together the book of Acts that Timothy became a Christian in about the year A.D. 50. Okay, so we're thinking the book is written sometime before A.D. 96 and after A.D. 50. Can we narrow it down some more? Well, uh, we know that it was written before Timothy died because the writer talks about him in the present tense, so that narrows a bit for us. According to chapter 2 of Hebrews, verse 3, it seems that the Hebrew church that's addressed here were were second-generation believers. 
In other words, they weren't necessarily those who saw Jesus himself, but they heard about Jesus from the apostles and the disciples, kind of second generation. So that denotes that there's a little bit of time. You know, it probably wasn't written in like 35 or 40, and we know that, and and not even the early 50s. And we also know from Acts 16 that Paul said they should have been, uh, or not Acts 16, uh, what book are we in? Hebrews 5, that they should have been teachers by now. So there's some time that had to have gone by. Furthermore, we know that the author writes of the sacrificial system, the sacrificial system that was in the temple. And when he writes about it in the Greek language, he uses the present tense. That would then lead us to believe that the Levitical system, the sacrificial system, was still happening in the temple. That means that the temple still existed. We know, historically speaking, that the temple was destroyed and the sacrificial system was was brought to an end in 70 AD, right? We know that for sure. And, And so that narrows it down for us a little bit more. And then lastly, in chapter 3, verse 17, the author implies that it's been almost 40 years since Jesus had been crucified. He was crucified the year 32, A.D. 32 or thereabouts. And so, by our best guess, it was written in the 60s, probably between A.D. 62 and A.D. 69. Which, you know, there's some important internal evidence that comes along with that knowledge. Here's what I mean. Because it was written within 30 years of the life of Jesus... If there were false claims made in this book, they would easily be refuted. And so it is with the rest of the New Testament. You know, most of the books were written about that time frame, Revelation being the latest, written in the 1890s. But most of the New Testament books were written at a time where eyewitnesses of the person of Jesus and the ministry of Jesus would still be alive. Now, these were widely, uh, widely circulated writings. And so if there were some just outright lies in the New Testament, like people say there are, there would have been a multitude of people who could have stood up and said, wait a minute, I was in Jerusalem at that time and that never happened. Or I was in Nazareth during those years and that never happened. Or Bethlehem, or Samaria, or at the Jordan River, or wherever. There would have been hundreds and thousands of people who if there were outright lies in the New Testament, would have been able to stood up and say it never happened. Paul appeals to that internal historical evidence in 1 Corinthians 15, doesn't he? Where he talks about the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and and he gives us there an accounting of who Jesus appeared to after the resurrection, and he says, and he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, many of whom are still alive, he says in 1 Corinthians 15. In other words, if you don't believe me, ask around. If I'm lying, somebody will be able to say so. For example, who in this room was alive and remembers the assassination of JFK? Raise your hand. More than half of the room. You guys remember that. So if somebody wrote a document nowadays and circulated it very widely and it said, well, JFK didn't actually die, you know, he wasn't actually shot in Texas, you know, he died in a a plane crash in Oklahoma and then he rose from the dead again. All of you that raised your hand could say, no, 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 no. I remember where I was when I saw the footage of JFK. I remember the assassination. I remember the details. And I've been here ever since, and he has never appeared to anybody risen from the dead. Now, how much more would people remember the details of the life of Jesus Christ and his crucifixion and his resurrection? And so the fact that this book was written within 30 years of of his ministry and his crucifixion provides a lot of internal evidence as to the validity because if a multitude of people would have stood up and said, those are outright lies, you know what? We never would have heard of the book of Hebrews. It would have been shut down, it would have been cut off, it would have been dismissed a couple thousand years ago. Isn't that good to know? Okay. Um, the theme of the book of Hebrews is basically the supremacy or the superiority of Jesus Christ. Remember, it was written to a Jewish segment of the church, and they had just come out of Judaism into Christianity. And that was a really big deal. When you spent your whole life sacrificing, 
When you, you, you know what I'm saying? When you spent your whole life celebrating the Sabbath on Saturday, and now you no longer sacrifice, and now you meet together on Sunday, and all those other things, I mean, it was a really big deal that people came out of Judaism. And, and there were some other strongholds in their heart, and, and prevalent in first century Judaism in the time just prior, there were sort of three things that were huge in the heart and the mind of the Jew. Angels, because of some of the writings of the rabbis, uh, Moses and the law, of course, and those, those two are synonymous in the heart and the mind of the Jew, and the Levitical priesthood and the sacrifice, also synonymous in the heart and the mind of the Jew. And, and so for these people who recognize Yeshua, Jesus, as the Mashiach, the Messiah, you know, they still had this thing of, okay, he's the Messiah, but he's really gnarlier than the angels. And okay, he might be gnarlier than the angels, but what about Mo? I mean, Moses, he's big time. Well, what about the priesthood? I mean, we've been doing the priesthood forever. What about the priesthood and the sacrifices? And you know, just as you, Christian, are sometimes tempted to go back to the old comfort mechanisms, that old way of life, that old sense of false security, just as you're tempted sometimes to go back to that old life, so was this Hebrew church. You know, it took faith for them to believe, wow, we really don't have to practice the law anymore. It's really been fulfilled in Yeshua. We're really free from the burden of the law and we have a standing in grace now. We really don't have to sacrifice and go up to the temple and do these other various rituals. I mean, this guy, the Messiah, is really, his words and his ministry more valid than any angel. It was sometimes hard for them to believe. And so that's the reason that the author of Hebrews writes this letter, is to demonstrate the supremacy and the superiority of Christ Jesus. Very similar to the book of Colossians that we're studying on Sunday morning, right? Kind of the same thing. But he wanted to show the supremacy of Jesus alone above that esoteric secret wisdom that was the birthing of the Gnostics. Not that any of those things were bad, per se. Angels, Moses in the law, the priests in the Levitical system, they were great and God used them, but he used them to point to the Messiah, who is the fulfillment of all things. And so the main warning of the author of Hebrews to his audience, this Hebrew church, is that they don't go back into Judaism. Now, there was some cultural pressure during this time for them to return to Judaism. We said that the book was written sometime in the 60s. My guess is that it was before A.D. 66. In A.D. 66, things really changed a lot in Israel. It was just four years before the temple was destroyed. But that was the year of the Bar Kokhba revolt. Bar Kokhba being a, a Jewish leader who, who led an uprising, wonderful to study and read about, really exciting, especially if you're going to go to Israel with us next time, study on that before, and we'll see some of the caves where they fought the Romans from there around the Galilee and everything. But in 66, there was this Jewish uprising against the Romans. And, and in the years leading up to that, there was this ever-increasing nationalistic fervor, which led to the revolt. And so there was upon this Hebrew church that would have been considered apostate by the Jews, a pressure to return to Judaism, return to Israel, return to the temple, return to the Levitical priesthood, return to practicing the law, return to keeping the Sabbath, all these other things. And there was all this pressure, this, this social pressure upon this church. You guys know what that's like. As Christians, we always encounter all sorts of social pressure. And so the author is warning them not to return back into Judaism. And that's where we read all these rich passages in chapter 9 and chapter 10 about Jesus being the sacrifice once and for all and about him being the high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. All that meat has to do with the person of Jesus, them being delivered from Judaism. And gosh, don't go back to that. And it seems silly to us when we think on the surface that they would ever return to Judaism having been delivered from the law. But we do the same thing all the time, don't we? We start falling back into that old life even though it's just bondage and burden and heaviness and we've been delivered. So the same warning to us, don't go back into the old things. Now as we come to chapter 11, four observations to make about it. The first is that the key word in chapter 11 is faith. Hence the title, the Hall of Faith, the popular title for it. The word faith appears 24 times in the chapter and every time that word in the Greek appears it's translated simply as faith except for one time where it's translated faithful. 
Another time where it's translated belief. So the key phrase and the key idea in Hebrews 11 is faith. In Hebrews chapter 6, verse 12, the author of Hebrews says this. He says that you ought not to be sluggish, but be imitators of them who through faith and patience inherit the promises. He says to his audience, be imitators of those great men and women of old who through faith and patience inherited all the promises of God. And so that's God's heart for us as a church this summer, that we would become imitators of those great men and women of faith who had struggles like we had, who had to wait upon God, who who had temptations and difficulties and time of doubt and time of not knowing and, and time of uncertainty and all those things. But as we move through... The next eight weeks, we're going to have all these incredible lessons of these lives. You're going to get to know the Old Testament a lot more through this study. But you'll have all these examples. And when hard times come, when times of doubting and wondering and wandering come, you'll be able to fall back and you'll be able to go, Oh, yeah, but you remember Abraham? Oh, but you remember Isaac? Oh, but you remember Enoch? Remember Rahab? So on and so forth. And all these stories that we'll study about. In chapter 10 verses 34 through 39, the author encourages them to exercise patient endurance. Turn just back a page, if you would, and let's look at the last few verses of Hebrews 10. Hebrews 10, starting in verse 35, the author says, Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has great reward. In other words, your confidence in the Lord, in His Word and who He is. Don't throw it away. When the going gets tough, don't bail out. You know what I mean? So many people do that. Jesus said that people would do that. said that the cares of the world would come and choke it out. Therefore, don't throw away your confidence, which has great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. That's true of so many of us in this room tonight. You have need of endurance. You you have the promises of God. You have the precepts of God. And and you're walking in His will. But man, the waiting is going on and on and on. I I just sat with a couple who was in this room tonight um, in my office yesterday. And they're going to be domestic missionaries. Missionaries to the nation of America. And boy, they've just been waiting on the Lord for the provision and for the timing, for all the pieces to come together, just waiting and waiting and waiting. And tonight they have need of endurance. Need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you're walking in obedience, you will receive what was promised. Verse 37. For yet in a very little while he who is coming will come, amen, and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. Uh, a, a quote of the Old Testament book, Habakkuk there. And that, that concept is relayed expressly in those almost very same words three times in the New Testament. The book of Galatians, the book of Romans, and the book of Hebrews. That the righteous shall live by faith and not by sight. Now, you're the righteous. You've been made righteous by Christ Jesus. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, God made him who knew no sin to become sin on our behalf that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. So you, by your position in Christ and the washing of the blood, are the righteous ones. And the righteous must walk by faith. It is the prescription of God and it is the only way where the Christian life will work. It will not work any other way. It's designed that way. And haven't you found that whenever you go against God's design, it just doesn't work? There is a way that seems right to man, but in the end it is death, Proverbs says a couple times. Lean not on your own understanding, but acknowledge the Lord in all your ways, and He'll make your path straight. And so the righteous have got to walk by faith, not by merely what is seen, but rather what is unseen. And that's what we're going to be talking about. And then it says in the second part of verse 38, But if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. Then the author says, But we are not those who shrink back to destruction, but of those who have faith to the persevering of the soul. The idea of shrinking back there is apostasy. 
It's the idea of turning away from your faith, just walking away from it. It's not a momentary doubting or a moment of weakness. It's not even backsliding. It's just outright walking away from your faith. And many have done that throughout history. Many have done that. You know, they've walked good for a while, a short while, or even a long while, and then just walked away from it. And that, that's generally because of a lack of faith, a lack of believing and trusting and waiting on the Lord. And so we're not those who shrink back or commit apostasy, denounce our Christian faith. And they might not denounce their faith verbally, but boy, with their lifestyle and their actions, they sure have denounced it. And then it says, those who shrink back to destruction. Now, now destruction there, can, in the Greek term, can refer to just temporal destruction or eternal destruction, meaning just some hard times on this or earth or uh, being without salvation. But here, due to the context of the rest of the book, we believe that this destruction is not speaking of our position before God. It's not speaking of our salvation before God. But it's speaking of favors and blessing from God. And when it says soul, it's not speaking of, you know, your spirit that, that we generally think of, that one part of the person. But soul in the Hebraic sense, he's writing to the Hebrews here. And the Hebrews understood soul to be a picture of the whole person. And so he's very simply saying, we're not those who shrink back, walk away from our Christianity and therefore experience destruction, not a loss of our salvation, not a loss of the finished work of Christ, but rather a removing of ourselves from the blessings and the favor of God so as to thrash our whole person. would be a very loose translation using the word thrash. Should have just thrown gnarly in there. And so then in Hebrews chapter 11, following those few verses, he gives all these examples of men and women that have exercised faith and patient endurance and so seen the faithfulness and the promises of God. And the author's main point is that since these Old Testament saints exercise faith, then for us to depart from the faith is, depart, is to depart from the plan and the program and the working and the history of God. Now, verse 1 says, Now faith is... The assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. It's often been said that that's the definition of faith, and I've said that myself, but I think maybe it, it, it's more correct to say that that's not necessarily a definition as, so much as a description. Maybe better put there. I, I don't want to mince words, but I think it might be better said that that's a description of faith. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Now, before we describe that, or, or rather define that, it's important to realize that this chapter is not talking about saving faith. Okay? It's not salvific. It's not having to do with salvation or our salvation. There's saving faith. And then there is the principle of faith, or faith as a principle, the way that we walk, the way that we continue in Christ and with Christ. So it's not talking about saving faith. It's talking about walking faith, if I could use that phraseology. And the first word there is assurance. It's a word in the Greek that we'll put up here, and I don't know how to pronounce it there, hupostasis or something like that. But anyway, it's a Greek word. And in other translations, it's rendered substance. Substance. It's that way in the margin of your New American Standard. It's that way in the King James and the New King James. And, and substance, that Greek word that is translated substance, we also have the, the Latin there. And it, the, the Latin words are sub and stands. It means standing under. The idea of both the Greek and Latin word is this, a setting or a placing underneath a foundation. A foundation. So faith is the assurance or faith is the substance or faith is the foundation of things hoped for. Now, the reason that we can hope is God's word, right? faith is placed underneath our Christian life, but the real foundation of it is the Word of God. That's what we have faith in. God Himself, of course, 
but God as he is reflected in the word, his attributes and his characteristics. And you remember what Jesus said in Matthew 7. Keep your finger here. Go back to Matthew 7 real quick if you would. About having a a sure foundation. Matthew 7. The very end of it. Jesus speaking in verse 24, Matthew 7, 24, says, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts upon them may be compared to a wise man who builds his house upon the rock. And the rain descended and the floods came and the winds blew and burst against that house, and yet it did not fall, for it had been founded upon the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not, act, does not act upon them will be like a foolish man who builds his house upon the sand. And the rain descended and the floods came and the winds blew and burst against that house and it fell and great was its fall. And so the foundation of our lives That which gives us hope is the Word of God. And we're to build our lives on the Word of God and the promises of God. It's the eternal foundation. Jesus said that everything else is going to pass away. But not the smallest stroke of His Word will pass away. Not a single bit of it. Heaven and earth will pass away. But my Word shall never pass away, He says. And you know, everybody in this world is looking for a sure foundation. Because we are living in, in, in... in, in tumultuous times, times that are changing quickly and things that made sense a few years ago, much of it doesn't even make sense anymore. And things that seemed sure a few years ago, blown away in the wind now. But the only thing that stands is the Word of God. And so we cannot build our lives on ideologies of man or philosophies of man or wisdoms of man or the trends of man or what's popular among men or even the latest so-called discovery. It's got to be on the Word of God. It has got to be on the Word of God. I don't care what stands in opposition to the Word of God. Do you know how many times uh, the ideologies of this world have come into contest with the Word of God and they've just gone wham, wham, wham. And guess which one always ends up standing? The Word of God. Even every time science comes up. One time science said, the earth is flat, we're sure of it. We're absolutely positive. Don't go too far, you'll go right off the end. The Bible always said that earth was a sphere. Sometime later, oh, well, the earth is round. (laughs) The Bible is right. Scientists used to say, we can number the stars. There's about 3,300 of them. We've counted them. We know how many there are. And yet the Bible always said that they are innumerable. And now science says you could never count the stars. It's impossible. Before science ever had an understanding of the hydrological cycle, the way the water evaporates and returns to the earth and so on and so forth. Science didn't have a clue. The Bible outlined it for us. And so it doesn't matter what comes in opposition to the Word of God. Don't worry about evolution. The Bible says that you are fearfully and wonderfully made. And the Word of God will stand forever. And by the way, what is the latest trend among scientists? Well, there had to be a beginning. There had to have been, by science, we know there had to be a definite beginning. Well, if there's a beginning, there had to be a beginner. Amen? So don't, don't sweat those things. Amen. The Word of God stands forever. Build your life upon it. Now, back to Hebrews 11, still talking about this word assurance. It was used in ancient times to refer to a title deed. This is kind of cool. It was used in ancient times, that word in the Greek, assurance, or, or substance to refer to a title deed. A title deed is a legal deed or document constituting a right. It's a document that guarantees a right. Usually it has to do with property in our culture. It guarantees ownership and right. And so this word assurance speaks of a guarantee of ownership, of right. It can also be translated confidence. That word can also be translated confidence. So we see developing here that it's substance. It's substance. It's something that stands up underneath it. It holds everything else up. Faith does. And, and faith on the word of God. We see that it, it is our title deed, so to speak. It's a guarantee 
of the ownership of the promises of God and receiving the promises of God and that it is confidence. Confidence emphasizing results. Simply meaning, I quote to you from Arnold Fruchtenbaum, it says, the result is absolute certainty. A living faith that gives a absolute hope so real that it gives absolute certainty or assurance. Absolute assurance of things hoped for, such as spiritual maturity, the blessings of Messiah's return, the entrance into heavenly rest, the future glorification, and so on. So at the outset here, we see that faith gives reality to the blessings that we hope for. Faith gives and makes real the things that we look forward to. Now, when we say hope, we mean in a biblical sense. Not hope in the sense of a mere wish or a dream or a fantasy, but a sure promise. And so hope has a foundation. Foundation is the Word of God. The Word of God has proven itself to be trustworthy throughout history. Day in and day out, archaeological Uh, epigraphical, uh, manuscript evidence, all sorts of sciences day in and day out are confirming the validity and the trustworthiness and the historicity of the Bible. And so that should yield in us, by definition, a certainty, a confidence. Faith is the certainty, the confidence, the title deed, the insurance, the substance of things hoped for. It says the conviction of things not seen. Now conviction doesn't necessarily mean in the sense of being convicted of a crime. Very simply it just means um, to convince. It's proof or evidence. It it is speaking of here that feeling of certainty. The, The conviction. You ever hear a Christian and they just say, oh I felt so convicted. And usually we use that with, with sort of negative connotations, you know. Oh, you know, so-and-so is preaching. I just felt so convicted. I just tried to hide behind my chair. But the word convict doesn't necessarily carry negative connotations. You could say, oh, the Lord really convicted me about that. And it could be a positive thing. It means to convince. Jesus used it when he said in John 14 that when the Holy Spirit came, he would convict the world. Concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. It means to convince, to offer proof, to make certain. And what it's referring to here is that feeling of certainty that we ought to have as Christians regarding the promises of God. Have you ever known a Christian, sometimes young in their faith, sometimes old in their faith, and and they just absolutely believe God at his every single word? You know what I'm talking about? We all know people like that. I hope that we're all people like that. Where they just talk about, just I mean, there's just not even a doubt in their mind. They're not talking about, well, I don't see how it's going to work out. And, you know, I'm not able to do this and can't make ends meet. And I just don't know. And I'm just so bummed. They just go, yeah, the Lord. The Lord said it. I believe it. That settles it. Oh, the Lord is coming back. Don't do that. He's coming soon. Any minute. I had a couple, the same couple, sit in my office yesterday and they said, the Lord is going to provide. We know it. It's not even a question. We're not even tripping. We know God is going to be faithful in His provision. And it just isn't that so refreshing. It's that conviction there of things hoped for. It's that feeling of certainty. It's being far from, it's just knowing. And every Christian ought to be that way. Because when has God failed... Show me in history or the Bible or anywhere else when God has ever failed. He has never failed anybody in history. You will not be the one that blows his reputation. (laughs) Be certain of it. And so it's important for Christians as, as it comes to this assurance, this conviction of things not seen, which we'll talk about it in a minute. That, that we understand that when it comes to faith, what you do is what you believe, as opposed to what you say. You know, because everybody pays lip service from time to time. Oh, the Lord is faithful. The Lord is good. Praise the Lord. Trust the Lord. Wait on the Lord. You know, we all know the Christianese. Everybody pays lip service from time to time. But what you do 
betrays or reveals or exposes what you really believe. Not what you say. What you do. And so the way that you live is your faith on display. One could, if we did such a thing, look at your life and make a pretty clear assessment about your faith. Never judging the heart. Not, not judging the heart or the intentions. But just watching. If, if your life was on trial, could the prosecuting lawyer gather enough evidence to convict you of faith in Jesus Christ? Because a prosecuting lawyer, he's not going to be able to judge your heart. He won't know your heart. He doesn't know what's on the inside. And he doesn't give a hoot about what you say. Would he be able to gather enough evidence to convict you of having faith in Jesus Christ if he sent somebody to spy on you? Because what you do will expose what you believe. Spoke about in Galatians 2.20. Keep a finger in Hebrews. Go to Galatians 2.20, just a little bit back there. Galatians 2.20. It goes Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians. Good way to remember that is General Electric Phone Company. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Or Grandma's Eat Popcorn. Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. This is Paul writing. We know that Paul authored this one, or rather penned it. The Holy Spirit authored it is a more correct way to say it. In Galatians 2, 20, it says, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh I live by faith, by the assurance, by the substance, by the coming underneath, by the foundation, by the conviction, by the confidence, by the certainty, by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and delivered himself up for me. And so he said, in his flesh, everything was done according to faith, by that certainty in the Son of God. And you know, that's going to that's yield fruit in your life. There is going to be obvious evidence if we live in that way. Things are going to be different. You're going to make different decisions. You crucify with Christ and it's not always about you. We've all got the sinful nature. You know, sometimes we all love to have pity parties and make it about us. We're all sinful, silly people like that. But if the evidence were being gathered, could somebody see, oh, it's not really about him. It's about Jesus and it's about others and that's reflected in their pocketbook. That's reflected in how their time is spent. That's reflected in their verbal communication with their spouse, with their kids, with their friends. That's convicted in, or, 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 or shown in who they hang out with and where they go and what places they frequent and what places they don't frequent. Another good one is in Philippians. Grandmas eat pop corn go to pop philippians chapter 3 philippians chapter 3 verse 20 says for our citizenship is in heaven from which also we eagerly wait for a savior the lord jesus christ amen Speaking about the rapture of the church, of course. Our citizenship is in heaven. We're just sojourners through here, he's saying. We're just passing through. We, we've got a passport, and the stamp says, citizen of the kingdom of God on it. We're, we're just passing through. And, but we're also eagerly awaiting for our Savior, our King, to return. Now, if that is true for you and I, and that's faith being lived out, There's just going to be differences. We're going to hold the things of this world just a little bit more lightly. They're not going to sway us so much. They're not going to affect us so much. We're not so easily derailed by them. And that eagerness of waiting for the Lord, it's played out in what we do and what we don't do. You know, you don't want to get caught with your hand in the cookie jar when the king comes home. You know what I'm saying? And then in verse 21, 
speaking of Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things unto himself. And so Paul here is reflecting that when you have genuine faith, it transforms and it changes the way that you live. Now going back to Hebrews, says that we have the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. The conviction of things not seen. That's why it requires faith, because it's things we don't see. If you can see it, it doesn't necessarily require faith. And so they're unthing, unthing, unseen things, unseen, I can't speak, unseen things that we're talking about. Things such as the priestly ministry of Jesus. That means the finished work of Jesus Christ upon the cross, his sacrifice once and for all. We don't see that, do we? I mean, you don't see that. You don't see the blood of Christ. You will when you get to heaven, according to the book of Hebrews. You don't see it now. We don't see Jesus making intercession for us. That is pleading the case. That is saying, no, I paid the price for that. We don't see it, but the word tells us about it and we believe it. That's faith. Our access to God in prayer. We don't necessarily see the veil of the temple torn in two. The people in the first century, they saw it. We don't necessarily see the throne room wide open and enter into it visually. But the Bible says, let us therefore enter with confidence unto the throne of grace that we may receive help in the time of need. We don't see it. The word says it. We believe it. That's faith. How much you believe it will be exposed by the way that you live. The assurance of spiritual maturity. That God is faithful to complete the work that he's begun in us. Philippians chapter 1 verse 6. We don't see the working per se all the time, but we see the effects of it, don't we? You can't see the wind, but you can see the leaves blowing. You can't see the Holy Spirit, but you can see his work in your life. The full pardon of sins, we don't see the certificate of debt that says on it, tetelestai, paid in full, canceled. We don't see it, but the book of Colossians tells us about it. We believe it. How much you live in freedom from shame and guilt and condemnation then exposes the degree of faith that you actually have. We can't see these things. We know that they are really there. Uh, They're not only referring to those present things, but faith is required for believing the future things. We often think of it in those terms. Faith is not only future things, it's those present things, but also is required for believing the future things. It takes faith to believe in the rapture of the church. But we don't have faith in nothing. We have faith in the foundation, the word of God. And remember, when it comes to future prophetic events, God's past record is your future assurance. And so God has never failed on one prophetic promise ever in history. They have all been literally and completely fulfilled. So by way of logic, we're able to say then the ones that are yet fulfilled will also be literally and completely fulfilled. And so, yes, it requires faith because it's unseen. But our faith has a foundation that is the Word of God. Now, if you don't know the Word of God, you got no foundation. If you got no foundation, you can't have faith. Faith comes by hearing and that by the Word of God. Romans 10, 17 says, referring to salvific faith, but the idea is still the same. As we are in the Word, that foundation increases, and we have faith to believe for these future things. The second coming. Seeing our loved ones again in heaven. You know, I often do funerals and memorials. And when it's a Christian funeral memorial, I love to express to the family, you will see them again. And it takes faith for them to believe it. But it's true. Amen? Reward for service in heaven. The Bema Seat of Christ. It will all be rewarded for our faithful service to the Lord. It takes faith to believe that that's actually going to happen. But the Bible says that I believe it. That settles it. Not only is faith to be exercised with regard to 
present events and future events, but verse 3 tells us that by faith we believe things about past events. Verse 3, by faith we understand that the worlds were prepared by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things which are visible. By faith we understand that God created all things. I love what God said to Job in Job 38 verse 4. He says, Job, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? But faith is required. There's evidence all around. Romans chapter 1, around about verse 18, says that, that, that God has been clearly explained in the things that are seen. There's evidence in creation so that no man is without excuse. But yet it was still unseen. No one was there to witness creation. So we've got to believe it by faith. Faith is the assurance, the conviction of things not seen. Now in verse 2, the author teaches that history proves it is possible to live this way. Because, you know, it's kind of a, 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 to a certain degree, a lofty standard that we've just set forth about faith. It affects the way that you live, no longer I live, but Christ who lives in me, of realizing that our citizenship is not here, so on and so forth. Trusting in the present ministry of Jesus Christ, in, in the future coming of Jesus Christ, in the past work of Jesus Christ. It's not easy. Let's be honest. Let's be real with each other. It's not easy to live a life of faith. God never said it would be easy. But he's given us proof that it's possible. Verse 2 says that. Verse 2 says, For by it, by faith, men of old gained approval. They pulled it off. They had a testimony, it's often translated. That is, other people saw their faith and that it was real, and God saw their faith and that it was real. And because of their faith, God's approval rested upon them. Now, God's approval, not as it pertains to our position salvifically, but as it pertains to the blessings and the working of God in our life. And so it says in verse 6 about this, verse 6, Without faith it is impossible to please Him. For he who comes to God must believe that He is and that He is a rewarder of those who seek Him. Now understand again, this is not talking about faith that saves. With regards to salvation, it would be impossible for you to please the Lord. Jesus lived the perfect life so that you wouldn't have to. With regards to salvation, there's nothing you could do to make the Lord love you any more or any less because it's no longer you who lives, but Christ who lives in you. And your life is hidden in Christ. And God only sees you through the lens of Christ. And Christ is perfect. Therefore, it's impossible for God to be any more pleased with you as it pertains to our position before Him, salvifically speaking. You follow me? But as it pertains to our daily walk and the practicalities of that, as it pertains to that, it's impossible to please the Lord without faith. We've got to make decisions according to faith. We've got to walk according to faith. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him, or as the King James translates, those who diligently seek him. And so there is this sense that when we are walking in faith, we experience the blessings of God. Do you remember that the gospel said regarding the city of Nazareth that Jesus did not many miracles there because their littleness of faith? I mean, think about that for a minute. It didn't change their position before the Creator so much, or really not at all. But they didn't believe, and God didn't do. There are certain things that we just need to believe the Lord for. Matthew 21, 22. Whatever ye shall ask believing, that shall you receive. Whatever you ask believing... And James chapter 1, if any, man, if any man lacks wisdom, let him ask. But let that man ask with faith, not doubting, because if he doubts, he's like the waves of the sea driven back and forth. He's a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. James tells us explicitly and expressly, don't expect to receive certain blessings from the Lord if you don't believe. In Nazareth, he did not many miracles because of their unbelief. Not that he could not. But he did not. And so in our lives, without faith, it is impossible to please him. 
Now, there's every reason to have faith, Christians. Like it says in Hebrews 10:39, there, we are not those who would shrink back to destruction. We're not those people. We have the word of God. We study the history of God. We study the prophecies of the Bible. There is every reason to have faith. It's not easy to walk by faith, but you know, I, I, I don't think it's hard to have faith. The working, the outflow of it in our lives is not always simple, but I believe it's really easy to believe God. And so don't get too caught up and, and scared about these things, but there are consequences for, for not having faith. In Numbers chapter 13 and chapter 14, don't go there. We're, we're, we're sort of over time. I'll just explain it to you. You can go there if you want. But in Numbers 13 and 14, I'm not going to read anything. I'm just going to... Numbers 13 and 14, Moses had brought the kids out of Egypt, brought them to the border of the Promised Land, to a place called Kadesh Barnea. Kadesh Barnea. And there they sent the 12 spies into the land. And Moses said, go check it out. See if it's really all that the Lord has said. Bring back some evidence. Bring back some fruit and stuff like that. They come back and they say, it is really like the Lord said. They're in there for 40 days. They've been wandering for quite a while. They come back, been in there 40 days. It's, just, it's everything the Lord said. It is truly a land flowing with milk and a land flowing with honey. It is awesome. But there's giants in the land. God said this. God has proven himself to be true. But... There, there's a great picture of us, unfortunately. God has said it. I've seen God work. I know it's true, but... But there were giants in the land. There were some difficulties. There were some challenges. Guess what? God will see to it that there's challenges in your life. And so two of the spies, Caleb being one of them, said, Hey, no, it's awesome. We can take those giants by the Lord. Let's go into the land. This is great. The Lord is with us. We can't fail. But ten of them said, No, it's too scary. It's too gnarly. It's just like the Lord promised. We saw the promises with our own eyes, but we're not ready to walk in them. It's too gnarly. And so Israel fell into the trap that most people often fall into, which is going with the majority, the ten. And so didn't believe the Lord and begin to grumble and complain against Moses. Begin to grumble and complain and, 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 and rail against his authority and his, his work of bringing them out and his work of bringing them there and, and trying to bring them in. And so God brought judgment upon Israel. Well, what we're dealing with there is they got to the place that, that some authors call an irrevocable decision. They decided. They said, nope, we can't do it. We can't possibly do it. An irrevocable decision of disobedience. And so God removed from them the blessings of the promised land. You know the rest of the story. He said, I am sending you guys out into the wilderness now, and you're going to wander for 40 years. And every one of you that is over the age of 20 is going to die. Not a single one of you that came out from Egypt is going to receive the promised land. You are all done. I showed you. You saw it with your own eyes. I've been absolutely faithful. I parted the Red Sea. Hello. And now I bring you here, and you're not willing to walk in the promises by faith. That is it. God said, I'm judging you. None of you are going into the promised land. He removed from them, for their lack of faith, that blessing. Now, it's interesting that in Numbers 14, verse 20, it, it says that, God, that they repented and God forgave them. They even got to the point where they're like, we're sorry, God. We blew it. We should have believed. We're sorry, we repent. And it says in verse 20 of chapter 14, God forgave them. But he still said, you're not going into the land. Because they made an irrevocable decision of disobedience. And listen to me. It did not change their position before God. They were still going to be a redeemed people but it removed from them the blessing and provision of God. They weren't going to get it. That's radical. There are always temporal consequences for our sin. 
The one illustration I love to use is the kids up on the top of a mountain and they're making a snowball. It's wintertime. It's snowy. And they make this big snowball and they start to roll it down this mountain. And they see that down at the bottom of the hill, there's a house there. And and they can see through the windows and there's a Christmas tree and there's kids around it and they're sipping on cider and there's a mom and a dad and there's a little baby and they could see this house. And that snowball, because they decided to get that thing rolling, is getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And pretty soon they see, oh no, this snowball is going to go right through that house and kill that whole family. And they fall down to their knees and they say, God, please forgive us. We've sinned. We've done a wrong thing. Please forgive us. At that moment, they are forgiven. Their position before God is secure. But guess what, people? The snowball is still going through the house. People are going to die. They will go to court. They might be sentenced to some time in jail. They are still going to experience temporal consequences. Though their position before God has not changed, there's some serious messes that their actions will yield in their life and some removings of the blessings and provision of God. They made an irrevocable decision. It was too late when they sent it rolling down the hill. At that point, it was irrevocable in the results that it would yield. Do you understand that? That's what happened in Kadesh Barnea to Israel. That happens to us when we make decisions and we say, God, forgive me, and he forgives you. But there's consequences. You know, a lot of us, our our lives have gotten pretty messy from those. Pretty messy. They, They weren't faith decisions. They removed us from that place of blessing. About this, incidents in Kadesh Barnea, an awesome author by the name of Dwight J. Pentecost said, several aspects of this judgment are significant. The unbelief of that generation did not cancel God's eternal, unconditional covenant promises. Their rebellion did not change the relation of the nation to God. They were still his redeemed people. What they forfeited by their unbelief was the enjoyment of their blessings as a redeemed covenant people. They surrendered the joys of the land and the life of peace and rest. After 40 years, a new generation will respond to God's promises in faith and would enter and possess the land. Rebellion neither canceled God's promises nor changed the status of the nation before God. However, that generation did lose the blessings that God promised to provide. The Kadesh experience teaches the necessity of believing God and obeying God in all circumstances in spite of the obstacles. God is faithful and is to be believed and obeyed at all costs. Disobedience will not bring about a loss of position, but certainly will result in a loss of blessing. You see why this chapter is so important to us this summer? You see why faith is, is necessary for the Christian life and the blessings of God and walking in the will and the provision of God? You contrast that with the New Testament where over and over again, the Lord responds to faith. In Matthew 7, the, the centurion came and said, my daughter is sick. And Jesus said, cool, I'll come and heal her. And the centurion said, you, you don't have to go heal her. I know you've got the authority to do it. I've got authority. I tell people where to go and they go and they do what I say. Jesus, I know you could do the same thing. And Jesus goes, I have not seen faith like this in all of Israel. Go, your daughter is healed. Later on, four men tear the roof off a place where Jesus is and they, they lower down the paralytic. And it says because of their faith, he was made well. I mean, somebody else was healed because his friends had faith for it. We read that the woman with the issue of blood came and said, if I could just touch his cloak, if I could just touch the hem of his robe. And in faith, she touched the cloak of Jesus. He knew that power had gone out. And he said, woman, your faith has made you well. And the deaf and the dumb cried out to him and said, king of David, or son of David, have mercy on us. And he said, 
Be it done to you according to your belief, according to your faith. Guys, I just think that God wants to do awesome things in our lives, in our midst. Awesome, awesome things. And there just is not a reason in the world why we shouldn't have faith. There is just not a single reason in the world why we should not trust God. Every reason to trust Him. So there's purpose in our hearts to do so. And I think the Word of God will do that as we continue to study this summer. Lord, thank you so much for your faithfulness. It's comforting to remember right now that even when we're faithless, you're faithful. But you've called us to be men and women of faith, and so Lord, help us. Help us now in this moment as maybe you deal with some stuff in our lives. Help us in the weeks to come. We want to walk in the fullness of your promises and blessings. We we don't want to walk outside of them, Lord. We don't want to make messes. We don't want to get to that irrevocable decision. and We just don't want to follow you faithfully. So teach us, Lord. Teach us this summer. And now as we worship, I, I pray you do business in our hearts, Holy Spirit. If there's an area where we're not walking in faith, an area of disobedience, of unbelief that you would love to deal with tonight, Holy Spirit, we ask that you'd come and do it. And that you, by your grace, would birth fresh faith in our hearts tonight. As we worship, let's really press into the Lord.